0: Greetings, everyone, and welcome to our Berean Bible Church podcast. This is the beginning of our Elephants in the Room series. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning, everybody. My name is Tim Walker. I'm the lead pastor of uh, Restored Church in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Uh, It's great to be back with you after being here in December. Uh, You guys at Berean always give such a warm welcome. It's great to be here. Uh, It's great to be here on site in green, also welcoming those uh, tuning in online or in Cincinnati and Bainbridge. Glad to have you as well. Uh, Today, I have the privilege of kicking off a brand new series called Elephants in the Room to wrestle through deep struggles and real hope. So today, we're looking at an elephant in the room by answering the question, what does God say about sex? And everybody in the room just tensed up. You're feeling the gravity of the elephant in the room. But it's much more than just theoretical. Part of the tension you feel is likely deeply personal because what makes it so hard for us to approach this topic is that all of us are sexually broken. All of us have sexual regrets. Some of us have been sexually abused and some of us sit here quite sexually confused today. See, part of my story and my sexual brokenness is a number of years ago, there was a dark season in my life where I was completely dominated by an addiction to pornography. Every single day, sometimes multiple times a day, I found myself in this deep spiral of viewing and responding to pornography regularly. And at that point, I found myself buried in guilt, wallowing in shame, facing a compounding regret, a doubt that I could ever escape from the depth of that addiction. While at the very same time, I had a fear of rejection from God and others. See, all of us are sexually broken, and I'm not exempt from that as a pastor. Thankfully, over a number of years, God has done incredible things to bring me out of that addiction, but every time this topic is brought up, all of those old wounds resurface. See, as we start this conversation today, I actually want to start with an apology. I want to say that I'm sorry for the proud, harsh, uncompassionate tone that you might have received from pastors, churches, and Christians in this topic of sexuality. See, in direct contrast to that, when you read through the Gospels, you see you never see Jesus scolding, shaming, or casting out a sexual sinner. So what does God say about sex? Well, the complexity of the conversation to answer this question has shifted drastically, even in the past decade, because of factors like porn, abuse, gender, marriage, romance, media, and more. So it's going to take us a while to get through a thorough answer to this, uh, also because of the baggage and preconceived ideas that we walk in here with today. See, this message is packed out. And we're going to go pretty fast today so that we can cover as much as we can in order to give you a thorough answer to this question. Here's what I'd like to ask. Right off the bat, I'd like to ask you to stick with me for the entirety of the message. Some of you might get mad. You might have objections raised in your mind. You might even want to leave or log off, but I want to ask you to stick with us in the entirety today. See, we hear a number of secular and spiritual voices saying a wide variety of things on this topic of sexuality in our culture. But today, above all else, we want to hear God's voice, and we want to look at what God has spoken to us and what he's communicated to us in the Bible. So if you can, go ahead and take your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we're going to be today. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, I'd love for you to grab one of the Bibles in the chair right there. I'd love for you to grab that, use that, follow along, even take that home with you today as our free gift to you. In those Bibles, you'll find 1 Corinthians 6 on page 905. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12, says this, You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God will do away with both of them. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. And God will raise us up from the dead by his power, just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. And don't you realize that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one body with her? For the scriptures say, the two are united into one. But the person who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Run from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Do you, you do not belong to yourself. For God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. So chances are, at some point, you have encountered the Christian view of sex. Maybe in a church, maybe from a friend, or maybe even made light of in a popular sitcom. And while you might have heard what passages like this teach, uh, maybe you've never heard the why behind it. So what we find here is a letter. Written to, what's pictured here, the ancient city of Corinth and the church that was located there. Here's what you need to know. Corinth, to the ancient world, was the sex capital of its day. It was what Las Vegas is to the United States and what Amsterdam is to Europe. Because Corinth was a port city. And in it, you would find sailors coming in for shore leave that would be looking to hook up when they got off of their boats. Pictured here is the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of intimacy and sexuality. It was said that within any given time, you could find up to 1,000 cult prostitutes located in this temple. So to worship this goddess or to get a quick sexual fix, you would have sex with one of those prostitutes in the city. So here, Paul's writing to a group of people that have come to Jesus out of that highly sexualized lifestyle. Well, what's fascinating is there was actually a Harvard study done. And in this Harvard study, they called the biblical sexual ethic the first sexual revolution. Here's why. In cities like Corinth, people married for social position and a prestigious heir, but they turned to a mistress for companionship. Sexual enjoyment was then achieved with slaves that you bought or in brothels that you frequented. In that time, women were simply the property of their husbands, and unmarried women lacked the protection of marriage and were viewed as shameful. So the Bible's teaching in passages like 1 Corinthians 6 was radical, but not in the way it's radical to us today. It was radical in the way that it valued women and restricted using people for sexual pleasure. See, the Bible actually invented consent. So Paul is going against all of their prior education and experiences and what he's writing to the early church in Corinth at this point. In writing this letter, Paul is actually responding to many of the things that he knows are being done and said in this church. Check out verse 12. He twice references a statement that they make. I am allowed to do anything." See, the Corinthians were a group of people who were asserting their sexual rights and freedoms. Not only that, but they would say to Paul, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. They were saying that sex is just a physical appetite to be filled, just like our hunger for food. Now, right about now, I know that some of you in the room and online are going, I knew it. Christians are so weird in the way that you approach this topic of sexuality. The Christian view is very restrictive. It's oppressive. It's antiquated. And it simply takes all the fun out of sex. Why can't you just be normal? That's not a bad question to ask. So if we're going to ask that question, we have to ask, what is normal? Well, there's a new normal that's been growing in prevalence in our culture. In this new normal... The paradigm is that sex is casual, sex is everywhere, and sex is everything. Here's the case I'm going to make today. I'm going to make the case that normal isn't working. Because if we're going to uh, talk about what normal is, we'll have to follow that by asking, what is normal doing to us? So to answer that question, what I want to do is I actually want you to hear from a number of secular, not spiritual voices, that actually affirm the truth, the biblical truth of the passage that we're looking at. These normal voices prove to us that normal isn't working. So in this new normal, we are told that sex is casual. NPR actually did a story on this. NPR did a story called Hookup Culture, the hidden rules of sex on college campuses. And what they found is that today's students, like the Corinthians in the passage that we're reading, uh, believe that just like food is for the stomach, sex is just a meaningless appetite to be casually fulfilled. NPR found that sex is changing because it's becoming more and more meaningless. People are trained that it's supposed to be meaningless. And people are expected to have meaningless sex that has no romantic connection at all. See, the worst thing to be called on today's college campuses is not promiscuous, loose, or a player. The worst thing to be called on today's college campuses is desperate. Meaning that if you hook up with someone and you have feelings toward or desire a relationship with that sexual partner, then you are labeled desperate. This is affecting both men and women on college campuses across our nation. And so the host in this interview was trying so hard not to moralize anything, trying to simply be a factual journalist. He was interviewing an author named Lisa Wade who wrote a book called American Hookup. And he said, Lisa, I'd like to quote your book. This is what he quoted. Hookup culture demands carelessness, rewards callousness, and punishes kindness. Both men and women are free to have sex, but neither is entirely free to love. And finally, the host couldn't hold it back anymore. He said, Lisa, when I read that, that sounds so depressing. She agreed. This proves the point that normal isn't working. See, the Corinthians said, I'm allowed to do anything. But Paul reminds them, not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, he reminds them, I must not become a slave to anything. See, it's extremely hard to not become a slave to sexuality in our culture. Because in this new normal, sex is everywhere. Advertising centers around it. Fashion worships it. Movies glamorize it. Apps are devoted to exploring sexual pursuits. Songs celebrate one night stands. Books cause you to fantasize about erotic sex. And magazines tell you how to be better at it. But despite all of those realities and the prevalence of it, normal isn't working because in this normal reality, we are told that sex is everything. See, our culture tells us that without sex, you cannot be ultimately fulfilled. They view it as the key to a fun, fulfilling, meaningful life, to the extent that virginity is now viewed as a curse to be lifted or something to be mocked. Culture is essentially screaming at us that a life without sex is terrible. But not just a life without sex. A life without sex, however, whenever, and with whomever you'd like, is terrible, according to our culture. So, in that paradigm, even marriage, which includes sex, seems to be a prison because then you're tied down to one sexual partner. This type of thinking has led to the explosion of an app. That app is called Tinder. If you're not familiar with it, Tinder is a hookup app. And the way that it works is you see a sexy picture of someone and you swipe right if you're interested in hooking up with them. You swipe left if you're not interested. Just in the last 2,500 days, there have been over two trillion swipes by over 75 million active users on Tinder. 23 of those 75 million users, 23 million of them, are married and using Tinder to find, uh, a, to find an affair. Beyond that, over 38 million users on Tinder are between the ages of 18 and 24 years old, meaning that their sexuality is now being shaped by these casual sexual hookups. Vanity Fair of all sources, actually did a story on this. Vanity Fair did an article called Tinder and the Dawn of the Dating Apocalypse. Now again, Vanity Fair is a highly secular, not spiritual voice. But in in examining the effects of Tinder on our culture, here's what Vanity Fair found. One guy in the article stated, I kind of play that I could be that boyfriend kind of guy to win them over, but then they just start wanting me to care and I can't. One girl said, It's rare for a girl of our generation to meet a guy who treats her like a priority instead of an option. Another guy in the article bragged, I hooked up with three girls off of Tinder in the course of four nights and only spent a total of $80. Another girl said, I slept with a guy who ignored me as I got out of bed to get dressed. When I looked over his shoulder, I saw that he was already back on Tinder. And examining these examples, Vanity Fair concludes the article by saying most guys are not interested in dating. They're interested in hitting it and quitting it with no strings attached, casual encounters as easy as calling an Uber. Do you know what Vanity Fair is highlighting? They're highlighting that normal isn't working. We see this especially when it comes to the prevalence of pornography in our culture. See, pornography in our culture is changing rapidly because the porn problem has shifted. Here's how it shifted. You used to have to work hard to get it. Now you have to work hard to avoid it. In 2019, 30, it was reported that 36% of all websites on the internet had pornographic content, totaling over 350 million websites. See, in your generation, you might have been exposed to porn in high school or college or as a young adult, but you had to go somewhere and buy something in order to get it. In my generation, I was exposed to it at age 10 in a family member's living room who openly viewed it until his wife made him shut it off. Now, the average boy or girl in America is first exposed to pornography at age six. In 2021, there was a study done that found that there was a 362% increase in elementary age students accessing pornography. As this cultural trend has grown, the New York Times did a story in which they said this, Pornography is a sickness. It is when our healthy sexuality is distorted and becomes sick. The largest users of internet porn are between the age of 12 and 17, and porn producers increasingly target adolescents. In fact, the number one porn search term is teens, teen. See, our teens aren't just growing up viewing porn. They're now making it themselves on their smartphones or bullying others in their classrooms to send them nude photos. Parents, hear me clearly. If you are not intentional, about talking to your children about sexuality, even at young ages. Someone or something else will shape them in the absence of your influence. Pornography has now grown into a $97 billion industry. That's more than the MLB, NBA, and NFL combined. 80% of men report regularly using porn, but it's not just a male issue because the fastest growing usage is amongst young women. Time Magazine has taken notice of this. It actually did a front cover story on the effects of pornography. They found that there's a whole generation saying that pornographic and digital arousal is leading them to diminished passion, diminished response, and a diminished sexual desire with real people. This is what Time Magazine said. Sexually active singles have the most problems and have higher rates of depression. Those consuming large amounts of porn have poorer physical health and worse grades. It's killing a generation. Why? Because their brain with the drug of porn, which is as addicting as heroin, is causing them to be conditioned to be only satisfied in a certain digital context. See, porn is rewiring our brain with dopamine. Dopamine is the chemical in our brains that gives us a rush. But like all addictions, it has a law of diminishing return. Meaning that the same images don't produce the same dopamine level the next time. It always pushes you for a greater dopamine high. The longer you're addicted to pornography, the deeper you go and down the spiral of raunchier and raunchier content in order to get your dopamine fix. This is causing a cultural crisis where people are trading physical intimacy for digital pleasure. It deeply impacts marriages as many porn users report no longer being aroused by their spouses. In a New York Times study of 16 to 18-year-olds, they found that nearly every one of them reported learning how to have sex by online videos. These teenage women reported being pressured into playing out scripts that their male partners had learned from porn. These teenage girls told that they were badgered into uncomfortable acts but ultimately consented to unpleasant and painful sexual experiences. See, all research shows a direct connection between sex trafficking, violence toward women, rape culture, and pornography. And by using pornography, you're devaluing men and women by objectifying them, and you're contributing to the success and growth of this toxic industry. But despite all of those destructive effects, in 2018, 42% of adults actually believed that porn was morally acceptable. That's what's normal in our culture, and that's how we know that normal isn't working. But here's what you have to understand. God never takes something away for no reason. It is to our benefit that God says here in verse 12 that we must not be a slave to anything. You might believe that porn is not that big of a deal, but don't miss what it's doing to you as it enslaves you. The reality is that the internet's only been mainstream for about 30 years, which means that we don't even have enough time and historical data to see what it's doing to us long term. But the limited time and data we do have is all showing us how damaging it can be. You might say, well, well, Tim, why does any of this matter? Because of what Paul writes in verse 13. Check it out. You can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord, and the Lord cares about our bodies. You were meant for something so much more than simply settling for a life that is enslaved to sexual passions and pursuits. You were meant for a relationship with Jesus, your creator, who loves you beyond your wildest imagination. So don't sell yourself out to sexual immorality. I say, what does that mean? Sexual immorality, according to the Bible, is anything outside of God's original design for human sexual relationships between one biological man and one biological woman within the context of marriage. Verse 14, Paul Paul then goes on talking about our bodies and reminds us of the gospel, that God will raise us up from the dead by his power just as he raised our Lord from the dead. Then in verse 15, he says, don't you realize that your bodies are actually parts of Christ? Should a man take his body, which is a part of Christ, and join it to a prostitute? Never. See, if you've trusted in Jesus through the gospel, don't miss this. You cannot have a healthy relationship with God if your sexual relationships are more important to you than Jesus. See, the normal view is that sex is casual. God's view is that sex is special. The Bible talks a lot about sex, and it does that in a very positive light. You'll find that in Genesis, Song of Solomon, the words of Jesus, the teachings of Paul, and more. God created sex to be enjoyed within his original design. The Bible celebrates sex as special, but also warns against the dangers of violating God's boundaries. See, in verse 18, here in 1 Corinthians 6, we're told that no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body ultimately, we have to realize that any sexual activity outside of God's defined design is destructive. You might say, so why does God care who I sleep with? Or you might say, if we're two loving, consenting adults, why does it matter? Not only would spiritual truth challenge you, but secular voices are now challenging those objections as well. The Washington Post published a story in which they said this, consent is not enough we need a new sexual ethic our consent first culture has left us liberated and miserable this is the problem with consent it leaves so much out non-consensual sex is always wrong full stop But that doesn't mean consensual sex is always right. Even sex that is agreed to can be harmful to an individual, their partner, or to society at large. Do you know what this article is saying? It's saying exactly what Paul says. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. We see the deep impacts in our culture of the sexual revolution which came in the 1970s. This was a turning point in American history where sexual freedom was championed and prioritized. Now, over 50 years later, this freedom has caused our sexual appetites to become out of control. What was once considered wildly pornographic is now mainstream in our media. We talk up consent and protection from abuse, but we tolerate or enjoy it in our fiction. We are inconsistent in the ways that we talk about sexual ethics and virtue signal to that end but act in ways that actually erode sexual ethics. I believe one of the greatest examples of this in our entire culture is the show Game of Thrones. So I've personally never seen an episode of Game of Thrones, here's why. One of my personal boundaries is that I never watch a movie or show without first reading a content guide. And if that content guide states that it contains graphic sexual content or any nudity, I don't watch it because I know the destructive path that will take me down. And I never want to be surprised by sexual content in my entertainment. But when Game of Thrones first came out, I had a ton of Christian friends that were saying how amazing it is and how much I was missing out on. And I looked up the content and saw that it wasn't something I could allow myself to watch. Since that point, what's been most fascinating to me is what secular, not spiritual voices, have been saying about it. In an article in The Atlantic, they said, the show's tendency to ramp up the sex violence, and especially sexual violence, is its defining weakness. After an episode that depicted a brother raping his sister on screen, the New York Times did a front cover story in which it said, rape has become so pervasive in the drama that it is almost background noise, a routine and unshocking occurrence." One British entertainment website review wrote this, It is safe to say that the HBO series has featured some of the raciest moments on television to date. From incest, to lesbian and gay couplings, to orgies, the medieval fantasy drama has left no stone unturned when it comes to sex. I've never watched an episode of Game of Thrones, but studies show that in the 73 episodes that total over 200 hours, there are almost 150 different nude actors and actresses. There are almost 100 nude scenes and there are 17 rape scenes. In studying this, Vice News reports that that is actually less than what the show would have included. If it had not been for such a strong public outcry in the middle of the show's history, the sad reality is that many of us have failed to even consider the effects of this erotic entertainment on the real people who are often forced to portray these things for your entertainment. Life Site News. Says Game of Thrones star Amelia Clark felt traumatized by the brutal scene she was asked to do and had to use alcohol to cope with the demands. She and her co star sobbed as they grappled with the rape scene that they shot for the very first episode. To be unmistakably clear, this isn't just what's happening outside the church. Because some of us inside the church say and believe that everyone has value because they are made in the image of God. And although we say we value that, we have devalued men, women, and sex by watching, promoting, and even purchasing graphic sexual content like Game of Thrones, which has abused and exploited people like Amelia Clark. It would not have lasted for eight seasons if people had courageously rejected it. But instead, it's become one of the most celebrated shows of all time. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes, But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity, because these are improper for God's holy people. To be blunt, Game of Thrones is well beyond a hint. And this isn't even something that we've engaged in secret. We've funded it by purchasing their merchandise. We've recommended it to our friends and we've publicly endorsed it on social media because we've convinced ourselves and each other that it's okay. In October 2017, a new light was shed on the prevalence of sexual abuse by the Me Too movement. This movement exposed the prevalence of sexual abuse in our culture. We find that left to our sexual freedoms, we've become sexually abusive. Hollywood has increasingly sexualized its content while being shocked that this sexualized content has produced horrific things off screen. But before you're tempted to point fingers from afar, know that the Me Too movement is not the only movement. There's also the Church Too movement, and the Church Too movement has exposed the prevalence of sexual abuse in tens of thousands of churches. Many Christians have become slaves to the sexual norms of our culture while being shocked that the same sexual abuse in our culture is also happening in our churches. In both of these tragic realities, it is abundantly clear that if you believe the lie that sex is everything, you will eventually do whatever to whomever in order to enjoy it. See, when it comes to this erotic media, we're not talking about obscure perversions in our culture. We're talking about mainly socially accepted sexual pervasiveness in our culture. And this is affecting us on a deep level. That's why Paul says in verse 18, no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For a sexually immoral, uh, for sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. See, our culture wants to separate sex from attachment and sex from consequences. But sex is not just physical. It's emotional, psychological, and spiritual. And let, let me make sure to clarify one very important thing. Having a sex drive or sexual desires is not wrong but letting sexuality be in the driver's seat of your life and choosing to let your desires lead you to disobedience to Jesus is wrong. In many cases, the church is often led with fear of worst-case scenarios, But even if no one gets a sexually transmitted disease, even if no one gets pregnant, even if you're doing things alone in the secrecy of your house and you think that you've gotten away without external consequences, there's still an impact on your heart. See, the more we allow something into our minds or our hearts, the harder it will be to resist it when we actually have physical opportunities. See, sexual sin is simply the body going where the heart and mind has gone long before. The normal view is that sex is everywhere. God's view is that sex is exclusive. See, God designed sex to be exclusively reserved for the covenant of marriage where there is this one flesh dynamic. We are knitted together at the deepest level, and it's not meant to be broken. One of the best resources I could recommend to you is a book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. Whether you're single, dating, engaged, newly married, long-time married, this is an incredible book. After decades of ministry in New York City to young skeptic intellectuals, Tim Keller wrote this book. In every statistic, living and sleeping together before marriage is skyrocketing. And oftentimes that's driven by questions like, shouldn't we test drive the entire relationship by living and sleeping together before actually committing to marriage? Questions like, if we're truly committed to each other, why do we need a piece of paper to say that we're married? Sometimes people ask, why can't we act married until we have the time and money to get married in the future? And many people are asking, why is sex before marriage such a big deal? Tim Keller answers all of that and more in this book. Here's what he says in one part. Indeed, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently, and exclusively to you. You must not use sex to say anything less. Tim Keller is painting the difference between self-giving and self-gratification. Where in sex, we say, I belong completely to you because it's about the whole person. See, sexuality can't be compartmentalized from the rest of you. When you give someone that, you've given them all, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. Sex is us saying, I belong permanently to you. It's about a deep bond that's not meant to be broken. Verse 17, 1 Corinthians 6 says, the two are united into one. God fuses us together through sex. Sex is our way to say, I belong exclusively to you. If you're giving yourself, your whole self to someone, you cannot give your whole self to someone else. If you're giving yourself to someone else while married, you're taking away from your spouse. If you're giving yourself to someone else while single, you're taking away from your future spouse, even if you end up marrying that person you're sleeping with today. That's why sex is designed to stay exclusively within the covenant of marriage. We cannot cheapen sex to say anything less. Keller goes on and he says, when dating or living together, you have to prove your value daily by impressing and enticing. You have to show that the chemistry is there and that the relationship is fun and fulfilling or it will be over. We are basically still in a consumer relationship and that means constant promotion and marketing. The legal bond of marriage, however, creates a space of security where we can open up and reveal our true selves. We can be vulnerable, no longer having to keep up facades. We don't have to keep selling ourselves. We can lay the last layer of defenses down and be completely naked, both physically and every other way. Well, if you won't take the Bible's word for it, and you won't take Tim Keller's word for it, maybe you'll take the Wall Street Journal's word for it. Because this is what they wrote. In an article called, Too Risky to Wed in Your Twenties, Not If You Avoid Cohabitating First, Their secular research shows that marrying young without ever having lived together with a partner makes for some of the lowest divorce rates. Beyond that, other secular studies have shown that Christian married couples are most likely to be satisfied and enjoy their sex lives more. See, God never intended us to give ourselves without committing ourselves through marriage. Normal tells us that sex is everything. In God's view, sex is one of many good gifts. You can find ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. Your identity can be rooted in Jesus, not your sexuality. You can cultivate contentment rather than being consumed by sexual pursuits. You see, in this new normal, we're told sex is casual, sex is everywhere, and sex is everything. But it's abundantly clear from both spiritual and secular voices that normal isn't working. So the question for us then becomes, how do we respond to this new normal? Look back at verse 18. Paul says very clearly, run from sexual sin. This is the only sin in all the Bible where we're told to run. Elsewhere in the Bible, in other places of sin, we're told to fight, stand, resist. Here, we're told to run because of the power it can have over us. That means that you don't see how close to the line you can get. That means that you don't convince yourself that doing everything but with your significant other is okay. No, you run. But it's not just about running from something, it's ultimately about running to someone. See, if today you find yourself at the end of your rope after searching for love in all the wrong places, you can find the love you've always wanted in Jesus, who loves you more than you could ever begin to comprehend. And you could put your faith and trust in him today. If you do know Jesus, run to Jesus, love Jesus, follow Jesus, and be fulfilled in him. But in order to do that, you're going to have to run from things that are pulling you away from Jesus today. Maybe that means putting filters on your devices, changing what shows or movies are acceptable, changing the dynamics of your relationship or living situation, or establishing sexual boundaries. See, in 1 Corinthians 6, what I love is that Paul doesn't just tell us what to do or what not to do. He ultimately reminds us who we are in Christ. Check out verse 19. He says, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? Your body is a temple which means that it's sacred, it's special, it's worth something, and you need to protect it. See, this description of your body being a temple is Paul communicating specifically with followers of Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus yet, this isn't talking about you. And to be honest, all of this isn't for you. What you need to do is you need to focus on Jesus first, not morality. You can live a moral life and never follow Jesus, but you can't follow Jesus and not obey him. See, if all these secular voices are seeing and saying how destructive normal is, what an opportunity for followers of Jesus to rise up and live differently and to show people the difference that Jesus can make beyond all else. Verse 19, Paul goes on and he says, you do not belong to yourself. See, this ultimately is an issue of authority because God designed and defined sex. The countercultural sexual ethic of the Bible is that we don't cling to our sexual rights and freedoms. We don't say, I should be allowed to do whatever with whomever as long as it's not hurting anyone. No, we submit to Jesus, who is our Savior, our Lord, and our King. We submit to Him in every area of life, including our sexuality. And I say, well, I don't like that. What right does God have to have authority over my body and my sexuality? Well, Paul goes on and says, you do not belong to yourself. Why? For God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. And here we are given the gospel reassurance and motivation that you and I desperately need. See, if you believe that a sexual experience, a relationship or a marriage will complete you, you will live your entire life dissatisfied. Other friends, romantic partners, or spouses will then become dissatisfied with you because you will crush them under the weight of unrealistic expectations. They were never designed to complete you. Only Jesus will complete you because Jesus came for the incomplete. He came for the sinful. He came for the sexually broken and he paid a high price by dying in our place. No one is perfect. I'm not, you're not, but Jesus was perfect for us. Jesus took the punishment for our sins on the cross so that we can be forgiven and we can be free. And in that freedom, we are released from the guilt and shame of our terrible choices. And in light of that forgiveness, we're called to honor God in our bodies. Look just a little earlier in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. Let me read that to you. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. Some of you were once like that but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So in light of this gospel hope, despite the depth of our struggles and the issues in our culture, there is real hope that is rooted and found in Jesus and Jesus alone. And in light of the gospel that Jesus made possible for us, we're called to focus on from this day forward. Don't wallow in the guilt and shame of the past. Look to the future and what's possible only because of Jesus. We can't change our past, but we can protect our future. I know that I've been hitting you pretty hard and heavy today, and I want you to hear my heart. I've been working on this message for countless hours. I literally wept over this sermon. I wept for the two girls that I have to raise in this highly dangerous sexualized culture. And I wept for you because ultimately I want God's best for you. I know that this is new and seemingly radical to some of you. But over the years, I've seen Jesus change people in incredible ways that I never thought was possible. And I've seen them experience the joy of doing things God's way. I've seen people change their entertainment choices. I've seen people escape from porn addictions. I've seen broken marriages restored. I've seen people stop sleeping together. I've seen people get married to the person they've been living with for years. And in each and every one of those situations, I've seen people have opportunities to tell other people about Jesus and the change that only he can make in their lives. Because our lives are a billboard for the power of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit who is working in us and through us As we are his temple. So I don't want you to walk out of here feeling bad today. I don't want you to walk out of here depressed and feeling defeated. I want you to walk out of here compelled by the price that Jesus willingly and joyfully paid for you and live differently in light of that. Don't look back, look forward and live differently. So what does God say about sex? When you boil it all down, God designed and defines sex. But what we wanna do is we don't wanna just ask the question, we want to accept the answer. And I hope that what motivates your acceptance of this answer is God's acceptance of you through Jesus. So to help remind us of the greatness of God shown through His grace, check out this video.
1: The minister got up and he said, today I want to talk to you about sex. And so I immediately go, "Uh uh-oh, this could be a problem. And, And he took a red rose and he smelled it and he showed how pretty it was. And then he threw it out into the crowd. He goes, everybody needs to smell this. There's about a thousand of us there, almost all of us college and high school. Smell the rose. I want you to smell it. I want you to touch it. I want you to see the texture in it. You do it, do it, and I'm gonna teach. And, and then he began what honestly, up until this day, and this might have to do with my heart, I don't, I'm still wrestling, um, was one of the worst, most horrific handlings of what sex is and what it isn't that I ever sat through. It, it was fear-mongering at, the, at its best. It was, um, you don't want syphilis, do you? And everybody's smiling and having a good time until there's herpes on your lip and you, right? And so I'm just thinking, what are you doing? What are you doing? And, and then as it wraps up, he goes, where's my, where's my rose? Where, where, where is it? Where's, where's my rose? And you know, some kid came up, the rose is just completely jacked up. It's broken, the things are off, the petals are broken. And, and he lifts it up and his big crescendo, I mean his point is to hold up that rose and go, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And I remember feeling, anger like real legitimate i want to hurt him anger and it was all i could do not to scream out jesus wants the rose that's the point of the gospel that jesus wants the rose that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ won. You're not even teaching the basics of our faith.